we really have to focus our efforts on blood-brain barrier permeability, bypassing the blood-brain barrier, and then navigating the immune suppression of GBM. Amber, if you had to focus on two things for the rest of your life, those are the two things I'm going to be focusing on. And we have multiple intra-arterial drug delivery trials to bypass the blood-brain barrier. And then I just opened two, the first in the world, two surgical tissue flap trials. We're rotating tissues, both under the scalp tissues and from the belly fat tissues to bypass the blood-brain barrier and to bring immune cells into the vicinity of brain tumors. So those are just two types of approaches that I'm done, but I am laser focused. There are other scientists that are focused on maybe the molecular genetics. Some people focused on lit or laser therapy. I got two eyes. One eye is focused on the blood-brain barrier and one eye is focused on immune suppression. That's where I'm going. Welcome to glioblastoma, aka GBM a podcast brought to you by the Glioblastoma Research Organization, highlighting stories with GBM warriors, caregivers, medical advisors, and more. Join us this season as we connect with members of our incredible community and have meaningful and insightful chats regarding all things glioblastoma. Please note that any information provided on this show is not meant to treat, diagnose, or prevent any disease and all information that is discussed in our conversation is what worked for the individual themselves and should not be taken as advice. The information provided in the show is not a substitute for professional medical advice, and you should contact your medical provider and healthcare team with any questions. Dr. John Bakbar, thank you so much for joining our show. We are so excited to have you. I know we've been communicating for you know, a long time now. We launched Project Rush with you last year, so we're so excited to have you on. And I think our listeners are going to be so excited to hear all about what you're doing, all about Lenox Hill, and you know, just everything going on. So thank you for joining. Well, thank you for having me. And you've become such a partner and a voice. Your organization, Glioblastoma Research Organization, is just such a amazing and young campaign that's going to help us really find better treatments, not only for glioblastoma, but for other cancers. And what I like about you and your organization, besides your energy and your enthusiasm, is just you're innovative. And I think it's going to take a little bit of innovation to really move the needle against this disease. So I can't wait to participate. And thank you again for inviting me. Of course. And thank you for the kind words. So I think what most people want to know, I mean, at least I definitely want to know, how did you get your start? What made you interested in you know, being a neurosurgeon in the brain and GBM in particular? That's a great question. When I look back on my life, my father was a physician and my grandfather was a physician. And actually, my great-grandfather was a physician. But it's not just about nurture with a father who was a physician. I have an identical twin brother and he didn't take to medicine. So he went to law school. But I watched my father and I watched how we would walk into a restaurant in our local community. He was an ophthalmologist, an eye doctor. And just the way his patients would greet him and say, oh, Dr. Bookfar, hi, how are you? And thank you for seeing me so quickly the other day. And it struck a chord with me that to impact other people and their lives and their loved ones was something I just knew from the beginning was something I was interested in. And I took to that when I got to Penn as an undergraduate college student. I had one professor, Amber, who really changed my life, and his name was Steve Fluharty. 
And if he's listening, he knows his story. But he was a neuropsychopharmacology professor. And he's now the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Penn. So he did pretty good for himself. But the reason why he probably did well is because he impacted a lot of students. And one of them was me. And it was one course called neuropsychopharmacology that I really liked. And that really started my interest in the brain. And Amber, you know, you're good at what you like and you like what you're good at. I started liking the brain and then I realized I was good at it. And I started tutoring in neuroanatomy. And then I looked my dad in the eye as a third year medical student. I said, dad, I'm not going into ophthalmology like my ancestry. I'm going into neurosurgery. And he he basically spit his food (laughs) out of his mouth and his jaw dropped and the rest is history. Amazing. Was there any particular reason you took that class? Did you hear good things or what led you to him? Well, I think I must have, right? Well, here's what's interesting, Amber. I went to Penn and my major was in the biological basis of behavior, which is basically a combination of, it's now called neuroscience. They changed the name of the major from what was called BBB to neuroscience. So I must have had some inkling that I knew that was going to be my major. And that was one of the courses that I had to take. Actually, in one of the episodes of the Netflix show, I credit Dr. Fluharty with impacting me so substantially. And after somebody had seen that show at Penn, I got a call from the dean's office thanking me for thanking Dr. Fluharty. That's amazing. It's so nice, I think, when everything comes full circle. Totally. And so now that you're a very world-renowned you know, neurosurgeon and you run an incredible program at Lenox Hill, on your day-to-day, are there any rituals you follow, anything particular in the operating room? Like, What do you feel like you take with you every day in work as you continue to grow your practice? Well, I'm a very regimented guy, and that has really helped me. My twin brother used to call it the wrath <laughs> of John. I would be very structured in my, even in college. If we were at a party at 159, I would turn to my brother, who was still roaring to go. I'd say, I got to go home and get ready for tomorrow. And that sort of mentality, I take every day to work with me. You know, I'm up very early. I get up between 5 and 5.30 just naturally. I work out every day. I walk my dog. I get to work by 7.10. I'm doing surgery. I meet with Tamika, and the, as you know, our head of our research organization and our entire team. And we're studying. We're laughing. We're crying sometimes. But we're just working, and we're working right. really hard. And then I get home to my beautiful family and spend time with my wife and kids. And you need to be regimented when you have a lot of stuff going on. That's my average day. And and then the sun comes up the next day and I do it all over again. That's amazing. So obviously glioblastoma is a very heavy diagnosis and it's one of the worst possible brain tumors that are in existence. When you're working with families who come to you and you have a consultation what is something that someone can expect from their neurosurgeon? Like, how does the process work when you start to interact with the patients and their families? You're right. Delivering the news that you have a, a malignant brain cancer like glioblastoma can be devastating. It's devastating news. In fact, getting a cancer diagnosis is devastating, but getting a glioblastoma cancer diagnosis is really just heartbreaking. And people are educated, the information's on the internet. The important thing for me is to deliver the news in a way, and I never give false hope. I give very rational hope 
because there is hope against this disease. And we are making improvements in the treatment of this disease. And we are seeing longer survival than we saw five years ago. And we are seeing more people who live three years, five years. I saw a woman yesterday, Monday, 10-year survivor from GBM, fully working. And she's about 48, 49 years old, lives in New Jersey. We see this. It's not made up. It's not make-believe. There's reason to be cautiously optimistic for each patient. What do you think has attributed to the increasing rates of long-term survival? It's a good question. In my opinion, much like your iPhone has gotten better every six months, our navigation tools in surgery have gotten better. Our optics, like your iPhone, have gotten better. And so when I was a resident at Penn, my surgeries were commonly over eight hours. I don't like to operate for more than three to four hours now. Everything is sharper, finer, and that leads to better outcomes for our patients surgically. In addition, we have new tools like 5ALA, which is a dye we use to pinpoint tumors. We have augmented and virtual reality tools. We have better navigation. So the more tumor I take out from that very first operation, Amber, the better the patients live and the longer the patients live. And those techniques are getting better. In addition, our imaging is getting better. And then we can talk about the treatments. And the treatments are getting better. Our ability to deliver drugs in higher doses, our ability to modulate the immune system is getting better. Our understanding of molecular genetics is getting better. So that compilation of all of that is allowing us to get better. What do you feel is your favorite piece of technology that you've used in the operating room? Well, it's really interesting that every neurosurgeon handles in their left hand a suction, which is basically a long straw that is attached to a vacuum. So that's like one major part of surgery. And actually through that long straw, I suck out tumors. But actually some of the technology of what's called bipolaring is getting better. That's where I stop bleeding or I heat tissue. And I'm a golf player. You know, when you hold a golf club and you just feel as good in your hand or whatever sport, maybe you're a concert celloist or a flute player or whatever, when I hold those instruments in my hand, I just feel good. And the technology of these bipolars has gotten better and better and makes my surgery safer and safer. And every time I put them in my hand, I'm just ready to hit the ball far and long. That's amazing. With a glioblastoma diagnosis, it's obviously and very commonly described as aggressive. What defines the term aggressive and what makes it so aggressive? You know, I hate that term. And yet it's like one of the most common terms used, aggressive. And it's such a terrible term. The term aggressive comes from our inability to control its growth. So if you talk about the spreading of a mold in the house that you just can't get control of or weeds in the lawn, that no matter what you do, whatever weed killer you use, they just keep spreading and spreading. That's the problem with glioblastoma. Like any other spread of mold or weeds, we can't get into the roots of the growth and pull it out at much like we want to. And ultimately, that's what continues to grow. And that's what is so difficult to cure. Would you say that it's just in like the way the cells are made up, that it's so much more difficult as opposed to, let's say, a different type of cancer that is able to be controlled? Is it just the way that the cell and the tumor are like congregated together? Is that what makes it so difficult? If glioblastoma was in your breast, I think we would have a much better chance of treating the disease. I don't believe the biology of glioblastoma alone 
is making it aggressive. It's a combination of the inability to get drugs into the blood-brain barrier, past the blood-brain barrier. It's also the fact that the eloquence of the brain, meaning that I can remove a breast or a colon or a lymph node or even a piece of a liver and the patient can live an independent functional life. I can't remove many parts of the brain. And so we're limited. Remember, nine out of 10 cancers that are cured in humans are cured by surgery. Right. So the brain limits our ability to cure you by surgery. So it's a combination of those factors. Interesting. I don't think in the four years that I've been dealing with, whether it's glioblastoma or the organization or in any way, shape or form that I've been exposed to this, I don't think I've ever heard an explanation like that. And I think that makes so much sense. And I think everyone listening will be like, wow, like, it makes it much easier to understand. And that's something that I actually would have never thought of. But it's like, wow, it's a great explanation. <laughs> so thanks. Of course. And so normally with glioblastoma, what are some common symptoms that you see that patients come in? And adversely, what are some uncommon symptoms that you've seen? Well, look, I always tell, I hate to say that headache is common because we all have headaches. And so for your listeners, I don't want you to think every headache is a brain tumor, although many of us do. Right. But obviously significant new, in particular, headaches that wake you up or that you wake up with in the morning that are really high in intensity and frequency, and that may cause nausea or vomiting over the course of a couple of weeks, that's something you want to seek attention for. And it's still unlikely to be a brain tumor. You're more likely to have changes in your vision from your you know, your eyeglasses or sinusitis or TMJ. It's still unlikely to be a brain tumor, but you should get it checked out. Obviously, seizures, which are involuntary movements of any extremity, lethargy, too much sleeping, mental status change, difficulty with speech. Those are common things that we want you to seek medical attention for. What are some of the most uncommon that you've seen? The most uncommon is no symptom. Okay. Meaning that I just saw a patient who had, I think she tripped and fell and was found to have a left frontal brain tumor. Oh, wow. And so she got extremely lucky in that she had an incident that found her tumor. So actually the most uncommon is no symptoms at all. Interesting. And there was a neurosurgeon who was the chair of neurosurgery at NYU for years named Pat Kelly. And he went to his grave thinking that everybody, every human should have a brain MRI to pick up those incidental gliomas. I will say I'm guilty of that. When my father passed away, I was was like, oh my God, I need to get a brain scan. My my brain thankfully was, it looks good, but it's good. Just crazy how it, it's such a natural reaction for I think so many people. Sure. I saw that there was an article that came out a few weeks ago that I believe a university, I'm, the name's not on the top of my head, but they're working on developing a blood test to be able to detect glioblastoma. And I think that's so incredible because imagine for everyone that doesn't want to be exposed to whether it's radiation or an MRI is able to access a blood test. I think that would probably make diagnosis so much easier. And you can imagine that even for diagnosis, what would be helpful is we call it a liquid biopsy. If I can take some blood from your arm and tell you if your treatment is working or not. So this idea of progression versus pseudo-progression, whether it's real tumor progressing or if it's not really tumor progressing, one day I think we'll be able to take some blood from the arm and make that analysis. How far away do you think we are from that? 
probably in the next decade. That's incredible. Yeah. You got to keep raising money so we can get there. That's, that's amazing. Are there any early warning signs that you've seen on scans or do you think there's any way to catch GBM earlier? Like you said before, is it just a matter of circumstance? Look, if we imaged every human, that would be one way. So early detection starts with early surveillance, but we do not recommend MRIs. Of course, you find a ton of incidental omas, meaning incidental findings Then you have to counsel the patient about. The thing that we have the ability to intervene with, Amber, are the early low-grade gliomas that go ahead and turn into higher-grade glioblastomas or higher-grade astrocytomas. Those are the ones that we as surgeons have the ability to intervene and remove. And so we're pretty aggressive, mind the word, about removing those low-grade gliomas early so they don't transform. How can you explain the difference from a glioblastoma and an astrocytoma? Obviously, glioblastoma has been shown to be more difficult, for lack of a better term, but they're both in the brain. Why is one so much harder to treat than the other? And why is one considered more terminal? In general, the only time, you know, low-grade gliomas, I'll ask you this question, Amber. If I told you, which would you rather have, diagnosis of low-grade glioma or breast cancer? Which has a better 10-year survival? I would say breast cancer. You're right. Okay. You weren't supposed to answer that, but I'll give it to you. Oh, I just hear about all the research and advancements that are done. And there's so many incredible organizations. Low-grade glioma is really not low-grade. Okay. Low-grade glioma really is a malignant cancer. Now, the thing about low-grade gliomas are we're much more likely to achieve surgical cure because if they're in a, a spot that's amenable to surgery... They can be removed. And their division rate, meaning the number of cells dividing at any given time, so they're slower growing. So they may grow over 10 or 12 years because only 3 to 5% of the cells are growing at any given period of time. Got it. Whereas in a glioblastoma, you live 12 to 15 months because up to 75 to 100% of the cells are dividing at any given period of time. So that division rate is one of the factors that differentiates those slower growing gliomas versus the faster-growing glioblastomas. What would happen if someone was diagnosed with a low-grade astrocytoma in an unoperable area of the brain? We would have to give them radiation and chemotherapy, potentially, to prevent that from growing. But they grow. It's the rare tumor that doesn't grow. It grows really slowly. Interesting. Would you say that GBM is always terminal? I would say that GBM is always terminal, except for the extremely rare case where you get a gross total resection at in a very small tumor in a very surgically amenable location. For example, we can, I don't use the term cure when I give a diagnosis of GBM. I just don't. It's not fair to the patient. But there will be cases where even the, the small incidental case that turns out to be GBM, that's, for example, is on the surface of the right frontal lobe, and I cut out that patient's right frontal lobe, that would be the only time that we could achieve cure right. in the patient with a glioblastoma. It's also an interesting question because, I mean, if you're logistically speaking about human existence, life is terminal. But I think a lot of people have questions that like, is it always terminal? But it's more of a quicker progression than maybe what life circumstance would be otherwise. I don't love the term terminal. I can never really understand what terminal really means. Glioblastoma is an incurable cancer. And that's just 
the terminology I use. I don't want the patient to think this is curable. My job is to control this cancer for the rest of that person's life. Just like I may control their blood pressure, I may control their diabetes, I may control their lupus. My job is to control their glioblastoma until they die from something else, period. We'll be right back in just a moment. And now back to the conversation. So how do you think if a cure is unachievable at this moment, and obviously, you know, we're doing all we can to continue funding research and to get there, what does a cure look like to you? Well, is there a cure for high cholesterol? Not really. We control the cholesterol with statins, but it's not curable. We don't cure diabetes. We control it with a drug called metformin or whatever. So my job is to find the drug that will control glioblastoma for the entirety of one's life. So what does the cure look like? It's probably a combination of things. Now, the most important problem we have with glioblastoma, there are two. One is the blood-brain barrier, and two is the immune system. So for your listeners, patients with glioblastoma are immunocompromised. They're immunosuppressed. We don't have a full understanding of why they are that immunosuppressed, but believe me when I tell you they're immunosuppressed as if they have HIV or even AIDS, which is a very immunosuppressed, what we call phenotype. Look, we all just went through a big pandemic, right? Many of us got the COVID vaccine. The COVID vaccine is an, an mRNA that's put under our skin, that mRNA is to a spike protein on the COVID surface. That COVID vaccine is picked up by a cell under your skin called the dendritic cell. It's taken to your lymph node where it teaches a bunch of lymphocytes and B cells to recognize that as foreign. And then we live happily ever after immune from COVID. Now, if I were to take that scenario and apply it to cancer, every cancer has what's called tumor-associated antigens or TAA. Glioblastoma has TAAs. My job is to teach our immune system to recognize those tumor-associated antigens as foreign, and we live a happy life immune from glioblastoma. That would be the holy grail cure for all cancers. In fact, with the success of the COVID vaccines, Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna are moving that technology into cancer. So, for example, a lot of GBMs have a mutated EGFR protein. Why not take an mRNA of the EGFR V3 peptide, put it under our skin, and replicate the success that we saw with COVID with this mRNA against glioblastoma? And why will we have trouble with that? I'll tell you why. Because patients with glioblastoma are immunosuppressed. So those lymphocytes that we're teaching to recognize that tumor-associated antigens can't get into the brain. So the success we saw with COVID vaccines is helpful because we inhale the COVID virus. We will have an additional problem getting those lymphocytes into the brain, but at least let's take it one step at a time. We have to teach our immune system to recognize GBM antigens as foreign, and then we have to get those lymphocytes into the brain and help kill cancer cells in the brain. Well, here's another question. Is that GBM is always mutating. So let's say you take a certain mutation and you create a vaccine for it. Who's to say that 
it won't mutate X amount of time after it's injected. COVID is always mutating. That's true. The COVID virus is mutating. And so influenza is mutating. So we're in the business of mutations. So that's a very good question. And it may require multiple angles to attack mutating. Let me tell you this, bacteria are mutating now. One of the biggest fears of the next century are antibiotic-resistant bacteria. So we have our work cut out for us, Amber. You're asking the right questions. Thanks. So I guess, you know, as far as different mutations, of course, each patient is different in all of their circumstances. Why do you think that some patients live longer than others? Are there certain mutations that are better treated? Is it just about lifestyle? What, what have you seen in your years of experience? It's probably a combination of a couple of things. There's no doubt the biology of the tumor itself. So we know that IDH wild type tumors do worse than IDH mutant tumors. And that's information we didn't really look at five years ago. We know that MGMT promoter methylated tumors do better than unmethylated tumors. And there's probably a whole host of other genetics that we haven't even learned about yet, whether it's histone methylations or other amplifications and deletions. That's going to be the next five years is understanding some of the fine genetics. In fact, if people always ask me, John, should I send my tissue for genetic testing? Should I do this? And the, other? the genetic testing is going to help us understand those rare survivors. So that, that 10 year survivor I talked about that I saw on Monday, we took out her tumor 10 years ago. We didn't do any genetic testing. Her tumor needs to be analyzed and figured out why, what was the genetic signature that allowed her to respond to treatment. Another layer of that survival could definitely comes from surgery. So we know that EOR, extent of resection, correlates with survival. The more tumor you have removed safely, as long as I don't hurt you, the better you do. If I hurt that patient neurologically, that doesn't help with survival. Right. And so let's discuss Project Rush, the newest project that we launched in collaboration. We are so excited. I'd love our listeners to get you know an overview on what the project is. I know we've made some recent exciting developments if we're allowed to share those. Let's share it with the world. <laughs> First of all, I want to thank you again for reviewing our grant proposal and for helping us launch this project. This is really the continuation of a trial that I started in 2009, which was a phase one trial that we started looking at high-dose intra-arterial delivery of Avastin to bypass the blood-brain barrier and get into the GBM tumor tissue. The phase one trial was completed about 2012. That determine the dose. The phase two trial was just published last year on the cover of Journal of Neuro-Oncology. And with your help, thank you to GBMRO, we are pleased to launch the randomized, controlled, national, multi-institutional phase three trial looking to definitively prove that the combination of standard of care plus repeated intra-arterial dosing of bevacizumab, which is Avastin, is better than the standard of care alone. That's going to be about 430 patients. It's what we call a two-to-one randomization ratio, meaning that for every one patient that gets the standard of care, two patients get the experimental treatment. And we're really excited to partner with several national institutions. And the FDA just approved it. We're open Ooh. for enrollment. So exciting. So exciting. I hear all the honking on Park Avenue. <laughs> so there, everyone's excited here. 
to start enrolling. We're so excited and we're so thankful to be able to collaborate with you and your amazing team. I mean, obviously, everyone that we've talked to has been so incredible and our I think our organizations mesh so well. And I'm so excited that you guys are a part of like our little family. And it's been so much fun to talk with you and work with you guys from the beginning of this discussion to now we're a year post grant and we're officially launching and we're officially launching and celebrating in the Hamptons this summer. What better place to celebrate than the great environment? We have great sponsors and thank you for your hard work in getting our sponsorship started. You know, research is hard, Amber. I was taught at a young age that nine out of 10 experiments fail. And you just have to keep pushing and pushing and following your scientific trail. And if you believe in the science, which I do, you know, I go to the lab. I have a brain tumor, glioblastoma research lab at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratories, which is part of our large health system. You know, home of eight Nobel laureates, the nation's number one cancer research laboratory in the world and the country. So we're trying to move the needle from any direction we can and obviously celebrating with you and your organization and all those attending on August 6th in the Hamptons. We're just so excited to, we want to share some smiles because there are a lot of valleys sometimes and we want to make sure that people understand there's a lot of happiness going forward. I think it's so special because our community that we built through social media is so interactive. Everyone is a huge fan of yours. And I think it's incredible. And it's a really nice opportunity for patients to not only come, but also, you know, we have caregivers, we have friends and families. And I think it'll be such a nice collaborative way to show in person what our organizations truly do. Absolutely. One of the um, the benefits of having done the Netflix show was not only meeting organizations and collaborating with people that I may not have contacted with. You know, obviously, we may have contacted, we may not have. But actually, the rise of social media, whether it's foundations, clinicians, after our show, when we all hit social media, which we did pretty hard, it was great to see the rest of the neurosurgical and neurologic neurologic community kind of join along. And it's been so much fun, as you said, collaborating via social and staying upbeat. And now we exchange ideas. We don't live in silos anymore. So particularly in the post-pandemic world, some of those silos have really come down. That's amazing. I think that's so important to be progressive and to eventually lead to finding better treatments. How do you think that the Netflix show has changed the outcome of brain cancer? I mean, obviously, it created a huge voice and name for it to be more understood in society. But aside from that, it kind of took a lot of people from not knowing what glioblastoma is to obviously seeing you and Dr. Langer on the show to maybe have more understanding. So what do you feel like was the outcome from the show? The show, and one of the reasons why I agreed to do it, and I think I shared David's sentiment, you know, it was nerve wracking even saying yes to a show, right, Amber? In this day and age, to be that transparent opens you up to potential shade. I felt it was too important. No one really knows what we deal with. No one knows what our families deal with. And no one knows, there's never been a show like it. There have been emergency room shows and maybe there's a show, there's never been a show that goes into the reality, unscripted lives of what these families with glioblastoma have gone through. You know, it's devastating emotionally, physically, financially, psychiatrically, and to help them navigate this extremely challenging time is extremely rewarding. And I think 
what I'm most proud of about the show, I just got off a call, Amber, with a high school in Chicago who has made the documentary curriculum. Wow. 11th graders who take a course called medical chemistry. Wow. And they have to watch the show. And then this is the second year I've been on. And then I come on, I do it, obviously everything for free. And they ask me questions. And guess what happened today? One of the students just lost her father to GBM. Wow. And she got up and she asked me a question. It was very, very emotional. And he just passed away. And I said, you know what? To her, I said, like you, Amber, I said, all we can do is pay it forward. Stay involved. Stay educated. If you see something, say something. You know, Meaning that if you see a great idea, maybe it's in a different discipline. Maybe it's in colorectal cancer. Maybe it's something that you saw in a different, totally different field. Just participate, be part of that process because otherwise we're going to waste another decade and we're not going to move the needle in research. And I want to backtrack quickly because it was on my mind. You mentioned that you first conceptualized the clinical trial, phase one, back in 2009, or at least it started in 2009. How did you conceptualize that? Where did you get to thinking about this? So when I was at Cornell, I was at Cornell before I was at Lenox. And one of my partners was doing intra-arterial drug delivery for retinoblastoma. Okay. So that means he was snaking a catheter to the, in kids, snaking a catheter into the central retinal artery of the eye and giving a drug called melphalan and basically melting the tumor called retinoblastoma. Wow. And I had just come from Penn and I was like, this is awesome. And so I was at a barbecue with another Penn graduate. And we were at his, and he's the vice chair of neurosurgery at NYU now, Howard Reno. And he got called away from the barbecue. And he said, John, can you man the barbecue? I got to go do a stroke at Cornell. We were partners then at Cornell. So I started flipping burgers. And three hours later, he comes back. And I said, that was it? You were able to get a catheter all the way into the brain and unclog the stroke? And he turned to me, and I'll never forget this. He goes, John, I can get my catheters anywhere in the brain. And I said, no shit. So <laughs> I'm going to use you, Howard. We're going to do intra-arterial microcatheter-based delivery of brain tumors. I just had to figure out what the safest drug was going to be. So I'm a historical guy and I'm a history of medicine guy because of my ancestors. And so I went into the literature and I looked, I was running a lab and I found that this drug, Avastin, was very good at high dose of killing cells directly. Most people just think it shuts off the blood supply to tumors. But if you get a high dose of it in, it actually kills tumor cells directly. And the only way to get high dose in was through direct intra-arterial drug delivery. So it took me a year to get it through the IRB and the FDA. And we enrolled our first patient in August of 2009. That's incredible. I think it's so cool to see. Obviously, no, you know, we're recording audio. No one can see you, but the way you just explained that whole story, the excitement. I feel like it's me when I talk about travel. It's so cool to see a neurosurgeon who's so passionate and like got so excited about this idea. And now it's so many years later, you are where you are. So I, it's really fascinating. And it's such a pleasure to be able... Oh, first, thank you for sharing that story. That's awesome. It's very interesting and I appreciate it. <laughs> so what do you feel are the next milestones that we need to surpass to help increase survival? Really, the two things I mentioned, blood-brain barrier and the immune system. We really have to focus our efforts on blood-brain barrier permeability, bypassing the blood-brain barrier, and then navigating the immune suppression of GBM. 
Amber, if you had to focus on two things for the rest of your life, those are the two things I'm going to be focusing on. And we have multiple intra-arterial drug delivery trials to bypass the blood-brain barrier. And then I just opened two, the first in the world, two surgical tissue flap trials where I'm rotating tissues, both under the scalp tissues and from the belly fat tissues to bypass the blood-brain barrier and to bring immune cells into the vicinity of brain tumors. So those are just two types of approaches that I'm done, but I am laser focused. There are other scientists that are focused on maybe the molecular genetics. Some people focused on lit or laser therapy. I got two eyes. One eye is focused on the blood-brain barrier and one eye is focused on immune suppression. That's where I'm going. And if you could conceptualize using technology, any possible device that would get to let's say curing glioblastoma, if you had, you know, unlimited funds in the world, unlimited possibilities, what do you think you would create? There's something I would create. So there's something called MRI guided focus ultrasound. Have you ever taken a magnifying glass and reflected the sun's rays and either burnt a leaf or an ant? I was just going to say, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you burn your name into a piece of wood or something. Yeah. If you take an MRI guided device you can actually focus ultrasound beams into the brain and actually cause really finite, small lesions of heat in the brain with the exact coordinates that you need. So if you turn down that dial a little bit, you actually can disrupt the blood-brain barrier without hurting the patient. So I want to combine that MRI-guided focused ultrasound device, basically bring the patient into an MRI machine. I can actually disrupt the blood-brain barrier just where her tumor is, and at the same time, have a microcatheter ready to deliver a high dose of medicines in that area while the blood-brain barrier is open. So it's a combination of MRI-guided focused ultrasound and intra-arterial drug delivery. That's where the puck is going. Interesting. Cool. Now you're going to say, John, why haven't you done it? The answer is because I've never been in an institution. I've been, Cornell had an MRI guided focus ultrasound that they installed when I left. Right. Now, actually, our institution on the island is getting an MRI guided focus ultrasound. So I'm working with several people to combine those technologies. We're the only ones that really do intraarterial drug delivery. So I got to get the MRI guided focus. It's a $3 million, million ask, which I know you'll raise those funds at our Hamptons party. <laughs> That's really one combination of devices that I think is going to move the needle. Amazing. That's super interesting. Do you want to hear my idea? Yes. So this is unlimited funds. My brain is in the most scientific. We're in like limitless right now. I just took that little pill. Yeah. This is limitless. Imagine there was an AI technology and you, you remove the tumor, but you replace it with this AI technology that's able to grow to fit the rest of the brain and adapt the part of the brain that's missing. So like, let's say there's like a motor skill area and part of it was removed. It knows exactly where to take over and it just replaces what you took uh, out. Sort of like if you take out a square of grass, it would just refill in the grass and you wouldn't be able to see the difference of exactly. that piece of grass in your lawn. Yeah. That is interesting. It's going to be tough. You got to call up Elon Musk to get some of his developers on it. <laughs> the problem with that, it's not an impossibility. Obviously, the axons and the neurons and the microglia, the intricacies of that brain structure is irreplaceable. And getting those connections is very, very tough. But it could be possible. 
Anything's possible. Anything. Anything's possible. Well, I so appreciate you coming on the show. And I think so many people are going to be fascinated by what you had to say. Thank you so much again. It's been Thank a pleasure you. collaborating with you and the whole team. You guys are awesome. You guys are family at this point. So I'm so excited for everyone to listen to this. Can't wait for our launch party and to continue supporting research. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Amber, so much and to your organization. It's Brain Tumor Awareness Month, so let's go gray in May and make some strides against glioblastoma. That's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for tuning in again to another episode of Glioblastoma, a.k.a. GBM. To get in touch with our organization, visit us online at gbmresearch.org or visit us on Instagram or Facebook at Glioblastoma Research. Visit us on Twitter at glioblastoma.org or visit us on LinkedIn at Glioblastoma Research Organization. To make a donation to the organization, which is fully tax deductible, visit us online at gbmresearch.org where you can designate your donation in honor of someone or find other methods that you can make a donation with. Thank you again for supporting us, for supporting the show, and we'll see you next week.